G'day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truth number two, letter u.org. It is time for Gleanings from Genesis. I'm Jono and joining me all the way from Louisiana is my very good friend and co-host of the Tonight Tour, Ross Nichols. G'day, mate. Hey, Jono. How are you? Very well, thank you, my friend. Good to have you on the program. And in North Carolina, the professor of ancient Judaism and early Christianity at UNC, president of United Israel, the editor-in-chief of the Transparent English Bible, the TEB, of which the book of Genesis is now available at Amazon in both paperback and Kindle, Dr. James Table. G'day, mate. Hello, gentlemen. I missed you. I missed you too. Yeah. Sukkot had us been, uh, have a break. Quite a couple of weeks. Yeah, we had yeah. the festivals and... Uh, well, we took. Well, we read about it. It was almost like a prophecy. The days, months, seasons, and years, and we just passed some of those seasons, didn't we? So, we, that's we right. did indeed, and now we are back. Gleanings from Genesis, discussing this new translation, the Transparent English Bible, the TAB. Now there is a link, dear listeners. If you haven't already ordered the book, uh, you you really need to do that and follow along. You can do that. You can pause right now and get the Kindle version, which is immediate. Or you can uh, order the paperback, and the link to Amazon is there. Uh, comments: We had a we had a comment from Miriam, just a quick one. And uh, happy birthday, Miriam! I know it was your birthday a couple of weeks ago. So there we go. Yeah, happy uh, birthday, Miriam. <laughs> she asked, "Happy birthday!" This is, good, this is a good question. Why doesn't darkness have a good applied to it? And uh, and I'm assuming by that that the darkness that she's referring to is the state of the universe prior to creation, before God said, let there be light. So in my mind, this is a, a default setting, if you like. James. Yeah, I, it's interesting that she noticed that because I would have thought she would have asked about day two. Remember the second mm -hmm. day versus six mm -hmm. through eight, which doesn't have a good. Mm. And she's actually seen something even further in day one. Uh, usually you get the good at the end. You know, he sees everything and it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. But she's correct on on day uh, day one. He saw the light that it was good, and uh, the darkness is just there. So uh, I don't I don't have a good explanation for that because I'm really thinking more about the way the days are numbered and how day two doesn't have good. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. Miriam, if you'll ask me that question, I would say. It's because an expanse is not really a thing made. You know, it's a space. So you make a space so you can make something in the space. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so you don't say, oh, I made a space. That's good. I make a space and put something in it. In this case, the dry land. So, so the but opening great, of, of yeah. Ber the darkness in the opening of Bereshit is the absence of creation, perhaps. Uh, whereas God is, is commenting on the goodness of his creation. Would that be fair? That would be fair, and that would also then help uh, fit it. That would fit in with the explanation of why day two doesn't uh, have a good as well. Hmm. So that's that's great. A good, good insight. Things to ponder. Now, before we continue on, now because we, we are in, we're on page 33 of the book of Genesis in the TEB, uh, chapter 2 and verse 4 is where we're kicking off. And that might seem like a strange place to kick off, but it's really not. Ross, chapter divisions, can you fill us in? I absolutely can. And, you know, it's interesting because you, you, this almost feels like we did this on purpose. So I'm going to say that we did this on purpose. Is everybody okay with that? <laughs> yes, we did. Sure. All right. So it's uh, chapter divisions. I love the Bible, and chapter divisions make it so easy to pull around. You know, you can tell people, go to this chapter, this verse. But technically, chapter divisions date only to the 13th century. And a person by the name of Stephen Langton, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, is the person who uh, we give credit to for chapter divisions. So uh, thank you, Stephen uh, Langton. I don't know what his title, I guess you would say. No, Ross, I've always, I've always heard that he did these while he was horseback riding and therefore jolted around a little bit and made some mistakes. Is that just a legend or have you ever looked that up? You know, I haven't looked that up, but that would have been a long horse ride because uh, yeah. he's responsible. <laughs> but it, it is interesting. I'm going to have to look that up. I'm writing it in my notes right now. Uh, Something tells me that that that's not a very that's probably just uh, a legendary thing yeah almost like probably, a joke yeah probably so but you know think about how many people in fact uh in my research i found out that when jacob ben chaim 
published a rabbinic Bible in 1524 and 25, he used these Christian verse numbers, chapter and verse numbers. But one of the things that he says in the introduction to that rabbinic Bible is very interesting, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says basically that had he known about another more ancient and Jewish division, he would have used these. So he noted these divisions in the introduction to that work. Now, what are those divisions? They're actually Masoretic notes that divide the text into what we call a seder, or sederim is plural. And, and one of the things that you do is when you look in the Hebrew, these are indicated in the, the notes of the Masoretes, which were scribes who preserved traditional points within the Hebrew Bible. So years ago, I wrote a, an article. It's published on my academia page. And Jonah, I'll give you that link, and you can post it in the notes. And what I do is I provide all of these ancient divisions. Now, the reason these are important, primarily we're dealing with Genesis right now. But throughout the Torah, uh, these sederim were used in ancient Israel. Um, we're talking about at least a couple of centuries BCE, where in, in the land of Israel, they read through the Torah, not every year like we commonly do in the annual cycle of readings, but it took about three to three and a half years to work through the Torah portion because they followed these ancient divisions. Interestingly enough, the first section of the text, the first Seder is Genesis 1-1 through 2-3. Now, this morning, or, or when people listen to this uh, this episode, we're picking up at Genesis 2-4, which begins the second Seder. So, one other point of division uh, is to note that there is a phrase that Dr. Tabor draws out in bold type in Genesis, in, in this translation, and you'll notice in verse 4, it begins, These are the bringings forth of the skies and the land in their being created. Mm -hmm. This translation, we're going to let Dr. Tabor tell us about this, but the bringings forth in Hebrew, Ele Toledot, occurs 10 times in the book of Genesis and sort of carries along the narrative flow of the text. James, you want to talk a little bit about the bringings forth? Yeah, one of the things people wonder is, is that a conclusion to what we think of as mainly chapter one? Or is it the introduction of what's to follow? Right. And the interpretation that uh, most of the scholars go for is the, these are 10 divisions in the book of Genesis that you call the generations. That's the old English. But literally... Uh, the Hebrew word uh, to bring forth or beget. Uh, so you've got bringings forth of the skies and the land. And notice mm -hmm. it's the skies and the land. And then what follows is an explanation of that. So it's like saying, this is the account of, you ready? Let's go. So it's actually the introduction to our program today. Let's talk it is, about it is the, the bringings forth of the skies and the land. And not only is it the introduction, but it, just quickly, James, this uh, is also represented in the, the, uh, the book of Genesis, in the TAB, in bold. Is that why it's in bold? That's why it's in bold. And the note tells you there are 10 of these. So what Ross is saying is really interesting. Let, you know, Go back to what you open up an English Bible today, whether it's Christian or Jewish Bible, and you've got the very common verse divisions that can be very misleading sometimes. Like here, you're in the so the very beginning of chapter two, but you don't start it till chapter four, uh, or rather verse four, chapter two, mm -hmm. verse four. And so uh, you've got that. And then you got the ancient uh, sederim or the uh, readings that go through the three-year cycle. And here in Genesis, in my translation, it's just of Genesis, I've got 10 ancient divisions that are actually embedded in the text that right. you can just see. So because they stand out so much, I, I put them in bold. So you'll be able to flip through and spot these. Right. And, and I don't want to go ahead and tell you what the others are. I, I want you to be curious right now. Wow, I never noticed that. So you've got this mm. phrase in bold. Flip ahead and find the next one. And that is the actual formation of the book we call Genesis. One other point, Jono. Um, we have in our English Bibles, whether Christian or Jewish, 
50 chapters. And according to the oldest uh, complete Tanakh, or the oldest complete Hebrew Bible, uh, Genesis is divided into 45 Sederim, 45 sections. So like James pointed out, here we are in Genesis 2-4, and it's the beginning of the second major division, which would run, by the way, and all of these are available in the article that we'll put in the link Uh, And I also have a chart of these ancient three-and-a-half-year cycle readings for every book of the Torah. Uh, But this one begins in chapter 2, verse 4, and runs all the way to chapter 3, verse 21. Mm -hmm. So this is an entire uh, section, and we're going to get into the content of that section now. But just so people know, from chapter 2, verse 4 to 321, that's what we're covering now. That's what we're covering now, and there is content in this one that is very different to the last, and it's immediately apparent, uh, and I'm going to read it. These are the, are the bringings forth of the skies and the land in their being created in the day of the making of Yehovah Elohim, land and skies. That's uh, verse 4, and this is the first time we see the Tetragrammaton note uh, number 33, for those who have the uh, the book with them, number 33 on page 33, James, the Tetragrammaton. I like those 33s. Did you will. plan that? <laughs> Did you plan that? So it's footnote 33 on page, on 33, page 33, James. How did you do that? From from the beginning of creation, that's been ordained that it would come out that way. <laughs> Actually, I think I'm going to say it was a Word document, and then it became a printed text, and there you go. Okay. There you go. But it is note 33. So, really interesting, because uh, notice the I defined Elohim just colloquially as the force, and then because it's plural with a singular verb, the force of all forces. I just like that sort of explanation. Mm-hmm. So you get here to a second account, almost like a second creation account. Mm-hmm. And you want to say something like, uh, name the powers. If the force of all forces ordered the sky and the land, then what is the name of that force of all forces? Like what force of all forces? It was, it, you know, we talk about gravity and we talk about the physical forces, electromagnetism and so forth. And some people say, well, it's just this other force, a higher force. It's it's God. So God, but think of that as a translation. In a, in a way, it's not very adequate. If El or Eloah is the power, and then you say the powers, the forces, well, that's not really a name. But this mm-hmm. is actually a name. And it's introduced here. And, of course, one of the big questions people ask is how do you say it? I'm a little more interested, I I think we can talk about, and I want us, all three of us are very interested in this, how to say it. Mm. And we've been using uh, Jehovah or Yehovah in Hebrew, but I'm more interested in what does it mean, uh, not simply how to to say it. And Mm. there we get into the grammar of it all, and I left it as YHVH for two reasons. First, I want you to really almost stop your tongue when you read it and go, the making of ye, what? You know, notice it, because it occurs over 6,000 times, the actual personal name of the force of all forces. Mm -hmm. And so if that name is Jehovah or Yehovah, or Yahweh, as many of the scholars claim, and we'll talk about that. Sure. Uh, if if that is the name, what does it actually mean? Uh, you know, names have a meaning. Every time a person is named in the Bible, there's the idea of, well, why are you calling that person that name? Well, why are you calling the force of all forces this name? So, Ross, why don't you talk to us about how this gets introduced? You've been working a lot on these sources. Mm-hmm. Like, we have it here in Chapter 4, but right. it's not even explained. It's assumed almost that the reader knows something about the book of Exodus. What's going on? Uh, we're not yes. going to do Exodus, but... Go ahead and clue us in on that. Uh, when Moses yes. has actually asked the question I'm asking, what's your name? Yeah, I, so the first time we really get an explanation is in Exodus chapter 3. And so this is quite a ways. Now, we do get one reference in Genesis 4.26 that 
then men began calling in the name YHVH. But we don't really get a meaning, like James says, until you get to Exodus 3. And if you if you look at Exodus 3.13, Moses is, this is the story of the bush. Moses is in the wilderness, and he goes there, and he sees the bush, and then this, this encounter takes place. Verse 13, and Moses said to God, uh, this is uh, the Koran text I'm reading, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they shall say to me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, asher I will ever be what I am. And he said, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God said, moreover to Moses, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, and now it switches back to the standard English, the Lord God of your fathers, which is Y-H-V-H, Elohe, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. But notice in the English, it it uses L-O-R-D, which is unfortunate, isn't it? It's very unfortunate because Lord, Master, is not, he didn't say, this is my name, I'm the boss or the master, so call me that, call me Master. So when you Mm -hmm. translate it uh, as Lord, it's going to get confused with other lords, first of all, because we have a word, Adonai, and Adon, one is plural, one singular, for Lord, and even God being called the Lord of all lords, just as Elohim is the force of all forces, Adonai, the plural, would be the Lord of all lords, but that's not this verse. So I would say that that's probably the worst decision you could make as to how to translate the name. Now people don't know it's a name. They're going to get it confused with other lords. There are a lot of lords, right? Yeah. Uh, forces and uh, actually Sarah calls Abraham Lord, Adon. Well, and that's not going to be all caps, but still. It has nothing to do with this name. This is a mysterious name, but it's not so mysterious uh, what Ross just read and talked about. What is this yee business? Well, it has to do with the verb to be. That's our clue. The verb to be is is literally in the third person, haya, he is, or in this case, he was. It's, it's, it's what we call perfect and imperfect. We shouldn't really say future and past. So... Mm-hmm. Is is the perfect? It's the finished. He was, and then you would say, "Well, isn't he also? He is. You mean he was, and now he's no more. Like someone was, uh, and you say, yeah, he's he is.' And what about the future? The imperfect. Uh, what about I will be what I will be? And so you've actually got all three embedded in this one. And even though I think the scholars have gone pretty universally for Yahweh, Yahweh, which is the third person imperfect of the Hifil. Remember the Hifil, the causal? Something Mm -hmm. like uh, he that causes to be. That's possible. I'm not absolutely saying if people want to say Yahweh and they're convinced that's it, uh, they've got a lot of scholars on their side. But notice it doesn't, when it's explained as yihye, I will be, or I am what I am, that seems to not simply say uh, he's the one who will be, but also to pull together all the aspects of the verb to be. Now, the rabbis won't pronounce this uh, for reasons of holiness. And uh, there, there is an argument in the book of Jeremiah, which Ross mm-hmm. has been teaching about, Mm-hmm. that the Jews who left Judea in the Babylonian captivity, uh, Jeremiah gets a message, don't pronounce my name when you go back among the nations. And I don't know, Ernest Martin suggested this years ago. Uh, he was a friend of mine. In fact, it was one of the inspirations for this translation. And, and he always said, and I, I never forgot this, he said, you know, James, maybe there's some wisdom to that. Even though Christians often and others, uh, Hebraists, will say, we need to say the name. Why aren't we saying the name? The conspiracy of silence, right? Mm-hmm. That Nehemiah talked about. Well, there's some truth to that. 
But Martin's point was, you know, when people curse, okay, profanity, right? We call it profanity. They use sexual terms. They use scatological terms. Look that up if you don't know what it means. And they use religious terms, right? I'm not going to say these awful words on your program, Jono. Mm -hmm. But you say something sexual, something scatological, right? And pull in some divinity, some references to God. And you have never, I have never, I've heard Jesus Christ. I've heard Joseph and Mary. I've heard all sorts of, I've heard God. Uh, I've never heard anybody say, well, Yahweh, do this, or Jehovah, do that. So maybe, Martin always said, maybe it did protect the name, so that now we can talk about it in a special way. But it clearly goes back to this verb to be. We saw that in the passage of Exodus. I will be what I will be. So this notion of how how would you create a word that would be all three uh, will is and was, will be and is and was. And it's interesting. If you think of ye, ye, he will be, hove, he is, and haya, you know what I just said? He will be, he is, and he was. And I make that a single name. And I say, name the one who it will be. And it's interesting that you start with the will be, the future, ye, hmm. ye. So notice you get ye, ho, ha. That's actually embedded in the Jewish liturgy. I remember asking a rabbi years ago, this was 25 years ago, in Jerusalem, a very prominent rabbi. If I named him, I think you would know him, but I'm not going to name him because these are sensitive matters. And I said, if I give you my explanation of uh, how I think this might be pronounced, and I'm not pronouncing it, but just my understanding of the grammar would you give me any indication uh, from your viewpoint whether I'm correct or not? And he didn't nod his head. He didn't say like, yes, yes, yes. But what he did say is, you have spoken truly. <laughs> Meaning mm-hmm. that's also the understanding of the rabbis. And if you think about it, it's in the it's in the liturgy. Uh, Jews say this three times a day, right? Hu hove, hu haya, hu yehieh. Jono, you've done these prayers, haven't you? Recognize mm-hmm. those phrases? Yeah, recognize in those one phrases. Of the pra- I think it's from the Adon Olam, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I believe, yeah. So there you almost, isn't that a beautiful idea, though? Mm-hmm. And if you put that into a word, so I want people, when they see my Y-H-V-H, if they want to say in their mind, Jehovah, that's fine. Or they want to say Yahweh, that's fine. But what if they say in their mind, the meaning, will is, was. I know it sounds kind of funny when you first hear it. I teach this to my students all this time, and and they they kind of laugh. I said, say it fast. Will is, was. Will is, was. was. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? I've never heard it put that way before. Well, Mm -hmm. read the verse again. In the day of the making, this is his making. The making of will is was the force of all forces. Now, I know that's going to be kind of silly just to say it like that in English, but look at the powerful meaning. Sure. Because now you've got the eternal one who also is the force of all forces. It's one thing to have force who orders the heavens and the earth. But what happened before that? Notice we started in the beginning. If you're even a three-year-old, you're going to go, Jono, what was before the beginning? Right. It's just normal, right? In the beginning, he ordered the skies and the earth. Uh, uh, could I just ask what was before that? And now we have the answer. Mm-hmm. The one who will be and is and was. And I love the direction, will, is, was. Because we would tend to go the other way, don't you think? If we were just thinking by our logic. Yeah, yeah, we would. You know, he was and he is and he will be. That's the way we think. But what about he will be, he is and he was? Gives you a different idea. Go you ahead. mentioned you you mentioned that passage, uh, James, in Jeremiah, and just so our listeners can look that up, it's Jeremiah yes, forty four yes. twenty six, uh, and it says, "Therefore, hear the word of Yodhevave, uh, all those of Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my name, my great name, says Yodhevave." that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt. So this is, it's an interesting passage. Uh, But again, I I put that in there when I looked at a translation, which I trust to be a very accurate translation 
with the exception of the name because of the religious stricture placed on the name. But to your point, this is one of the greatest unfortunate things in translation because people lose, they don't have what we have in the TEB. Uh, and some translations have gone back to putting a form of the name, which I, I tend to agree with because of the very reasons that you've stated. Because think about this. Look at Psalm 110. I always remember this, James. You brought this up years ago. But if you have a translation that doesn't really distinguish or doesn't uh, uh, show you where the name is, if you look at Psalm 110 in the very first verse, now this has caused a great deal of confusion. Now, as I recall, the King James says, the Lord said unto my Lord. Now, the first Lord is all caps, capital L-O-R-D, said unto my Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. But still what it implies is that one Lord says to another Lord as if they are the same. Hmm. And I think it theologically causes some difficulties there. Where if you look at the Hebrew, it says, Jehovah said unto my Lord, uh, the second being uh, Adoni. Yeah. So it is it's it's important. important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you get yep. to the New Testament, which millions of people are reading boy you get confused oh, because you got so. the lord god being quoted all the time you got the lord jesus mm-hmm. and you also just got as paul says there are many lords and many gods so what one are you talking about and i just love this idea of leaving it now i've had people criticize and write and ask over the years, you know, why don't you take a stand on the name? What is this YHVH? What is this? See, I can't pronounce that. Well, look at the Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And now, if you have a Masoretic text that puts the points in, you know, the vowels, then there will be choices of vowels. Uh, sometimes the vowels of Adonai, which is Lord, or sometimes the vowels even of Yehovah, which mm-hmm. Nehemiah Gordon has found hundreds of manuscripts now that have the vows of Yehovah. But if you go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, that is unpointed, meaning no vows, then you're getting closer to what someone like Jeremiah would have actually written. He doesn't put the vows in. And guess what? It would look just like this. Just the four, we call it the Tetragrammaton. I think we referred to that already, the four-lettered name of God. But I'm interested in the meaning. You see why? Because just to get a pronunciation correct, and then people will say, well, there was no J in Hebrew. Or there was no V. Or there was Mm -hmm. no V. It should be a Wa and so forth. Well, look, my my name is James. In Hebrew, my name is Yaakov, Mm -hmm. right? Those aren't hardly even close. And yet, when you go from English to Hebrew to French to German and so forth, these names change. So it's not how you say every single letter and every single consonant, even though I, if you ask me, I would tend to go with the Yehovah or Jehovah in English, but I'm speaking English. So if mm-hmm. you ask me, well, why do you say Jehovah? Because I'm speaking English. I'm saying yeah. the name in English. And if I'm, I'll read Hebrew to you, I will say Yehovah, you see, Yehovah. So I, but, but even if I do it, even if I say it correctly, according to the, to that interpretation, what did I just say? What did I mean? The ever living one, the eternal, the force of all forces that will be and is and was, all of that is in this amazing name. And it gets introduced here in the book of Genesis. Mm. And, and just one other point, when you mention like uh, the English version, Jehovah, because when I teach, I use that mainly because I want students to uh, recognize that I am referring to a name and I am speaking English. And sometimes I get feedback where people will say, well, there was no J. And, and I, I wouldn't say this to be rude or anything, but if if I were speaking, if I use the name with the Y, then should I also say Yerushalayim or Yaakov or, you know, any number of these words that, exactly. in other words, eventually you're just speaking Hebrew and most people couldn't follow anyway. So, uh, but it is important to draw out the name, I think, and this is a great way to do it. 
Well, from now on, I want you to, Russ, I want you from now on to always call me James. Don't ever call me James again. <laughs> right. I want the Hebrew version of my name, James. James, that's right. Well, and, and one other thing, though, it's whenever you see this, this also allows, because some of our listeners may follow uh, a more Judaic approach to the text, Mm-hmm. And and one other thing that's good about the way James that James did it in this translation is it allows for those sensibilities or sensitivities, I should say, where mm-hmm. a person can read the text and they can see the four letters and they can say Adonai, or if they're speaking, they can say Hashem, which means the name, which is another practice uh, in Judaism designed around this uh, approach to reverence and awe of the name as they would tell us so and uh, i'll tell you this i i've i've been around jewish circles many many times i've made 73 trips to israel since 1990 and many times working with the rabbis and talking to some of the major rabbis like rabbi steinsaltz who recently passed away very towering rabbis have had the privilege of knowing and i actually love that practice in english if i'm speaking english of saying Hashem, because yeah. what that means to my ears, the name, is all of what I just said to you. And then I say to Jono, if I'm talking to Jono, you know, Jono, when Hashem, the force of all forces, I just said, you know, Jono, that name that, mm. that we've just expounded, that has a feeling in Hebrew, the name, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it causes <laughs> you to kind of shudder when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, and I was just going to say, if if you wish, dear listeners, to add to your um, biblical library in addition to the TEB, the uh, the Book of Genesis, uh, Russ, the the Koran Jerusalem Bible does transliterate the names of places and people. Is that correct? It does. Uh, again, it does not do anything with the name, but that's because of uh, the religious aspect of the publication. It is a Jewish translation uh, published in Israel, but it is, in my opinion. Uh, the best. Now, uh, James points out it is thick and the print is very small, but it preserves a lot of the things that we're covering uh, throughout these episodes. Namely, it has the white spaces, it has Hebrew and English on facing pages, and it uses a transliteration system. So when you read read names, you do see Yerushalayim. For Egypt, you see Mitzrayim. You see so a person who's at the place in their walk where they're wanting to be more well, hebraically oriented, yeah. that's right. And and uh, one one other point uh, on the name, there are hundreds and hundreds of verses uh, uh, that are related to the name. And many of these well-meaning, well-intentioned name groups who might say Yehovah or Jehovah or Yahweh or Yahuwah, Various forms of their their they pick their particular uh, representation for the name, and they sometimes are a little bit pushy with it. Uh, but you know there are a lot of these verses. But one of my favorites is in verse nine of chapter three in Zephaniah. Go on, and it says, "For then I will convert the peoples plural to a pure language that they may all call upon the name of Yod Hey Vav Hey." To serve him with one consent, one so it, and it, it even goes into naming various uh, places. So it's almost like one day uh, this will be the case in Zechariah fourteen nine. In that day, Jehovah will be king over all the earth. He will be one, and his name one. So the name is very important, and many of the people who really study the Bible. Uh, they truly do love and respect the name, and that's why I think it's so important for an accurate translation uh, to be respectful of the name, but yet show the student what's actually in the Hebrew. So I, mm-hmm. I think this is a great way to do it, the way James has done it. And the oldest copy of Genesis on Earth. I'm not talking about the Leningrad Codex, which Ross was talking about the divisions of our oldest manuscript, but the oldest copy on Earth, which is part of a fragment of Genesis from K4 of the Dead Sea Scrolls, ah. 
has it exactly like this, meaning just right? the letters, not not the vowels, because mm-hmm. you don't point uh, a Dead Sea text. So it also goes back to the more ancient practice uh, of not putting the vowels in because you understand them. Right. But the pure name, I'm telling you, Ross, it, you know, no matter how you say it, whether you're speaking English or Hebrew or French or German or any language, even an Asian language, it was very, very different. The meaning will as was is going to come through if you understand this name. And and uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit. I'll, I'll touch it off, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about the shortened form. A lot of people are familiar with Yah. Uh, you know, one of the things that I love about this is that form of the name occurs. And interestingly enough, in most languages, the the phrase or the word hallelujah uh, is transliterated and represented in all forms of speech, as, as I understand it, almost exactly the same. Uh, hallel in Hebrew is translated praise, uh, and it, it would be hallelu would be praise ye, plural, and then the form Yah, uh, but Hallel actually means to boast or to brag. So boast or brag on Yah. And, and I think that that form of the word occurs quite frequently in the Bible, too. And translations miss that as well. But um, anyway, I just wanted to bring up the shortened form, Yah. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. most names, you know, uh, you can go to even in the uh, name of a man, Jacob. And then Yaakov, and then you go to English, something like Jack, or mm-hmm. uh, again, a shortened form, or my name, James, or James, or Jim. Yep. So the, the Yah is a kind of uh, staccato way of saying the Yehovah. It's actually mm-hmm. putting all those together in a single syllable and just sort of throwing it out there with a lot of force. Hallelujah. Let us boast or let us praise Yah, you see, mm-hmm. and uh, it has a rhythm to it that way. Let us praise Yah. So most people say the name all the time. Everybody has probably said the word hallelujah, even profanely, like hallelujah. You know, I got yeah. my check today. And you yeah. just said, let us praise Yah. Now, something mm-hmm. else before we move from the name, this is so important. And you reminded me of it, Ross, with this calling on the name. If you in English say, call on the name of the Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, then I'm going to say to you, okay, what's the name? What's his name? You just yeah. told me to call on the name of the Lord. What's his name? Mm-hmm. I'm going to call on the guy, you know, the one that you just told me to call on, but I need to know his name. So that is the, it's not just that you're hiding it with the caps. You're implying that there's something else when the name is right there. So actually it doesn't say call upon the name of the Lord. It says call upon the name Yehovah. You see the difference? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dramatically, because if I say call upon the name Yehovah, you don't go, what's his name? I just told you his name. But right, if you say call right. upon the name of the Lord, I'm going to say, okay. If I knew his name, I would be glad to call upon him. As if you're talking about a deity rather than naming the deity. So this name, this naming, it, uh, seeing that it's a name is so important. And I like the way it jumps out at you. I, I use the all caps for Elohim and mm-hmm. uh, Yehovah here or Jehovah and all the other names as well. El Shaddai, I don't want to do that now because we said enough about the name to get us going. Let's go on, Jono. Uh, I'm going to challenge you here, and you're going to have trouble. Try <laughs> reading 4 <laughs> All right, here we go. Seven. All right, Try here we reading go. 4 through 7 and see if you can do it, because it, it's tough. I'm going to go from go in the day of the making of Yehovah Elohim, land and skies, and no shrub of the field was before that on the land, no plant of the field was before that sprouted, for Yehovah Elohim had not made rain on the land, and there was no soil creature to service the soil, and a flow would go up from the land, and it made drink all the face of the soil, and Yehovah shaped Yehovah Elohim shaped the soil, the soil creature dust from the soil, and he blew into his two nostrils breath of life, and the soil creature became a living life breather. How am I doing so far? That's good. good. Those dashes. Now, some some of our listeners don't have the text in front of them, but you see how you have those dashes, verse 5, where it says, and it sounds like I'm going to tell you about the sprout. That's why I was joking with you about reading it. And you go, right. 
Okay, in the day of the making of, you know, when when Yahweh Elohim made the sky and the land, and no, mm-hmm. it's like I'm excited, and I go, and and no shrub of the field was before on the land, and no plant of the field was before that sprouted. You see, for, mm-hmm. and then I'm compounding that with another idea for jehovah elohim had not made rain on the land and there was no soil creature to service the soil and a flow would go up from the land and it made it drink all the face of the soil and yeah. you see so it actually has three ideas piled one upon the ne- another in hebrew yeah. it's, so it's, it's, as, if, it's as if it should sequence. be in brackets and then brackets within brackets is is that fair yeah something like that and the, mm. the dashes get it and you did actually yeah. an excellent job and working your way through. Now, making, notice, uh, going back to where you started, in the day of the making, uh, that's just the word asa, to do. Mm -hmm. So I translate it sometimes doing, sometimes making. That's Mm -hmm. really more English style. There's, you know, we don't always woodenly put exactly the same English for every Hebrew word. But here we, you know, we think of creation bara as more the ordering and here the making, because we've had making before. We, well, how about let us make the Adam, right? That yeah. uses making. Uh, but we're going to get a kind of focused detail. Now, scholars make the point that this is uh, whoever put together Genesis. Now, you might think it's Moses. You might think it's uh, Ezra or later editors. But whoever finally put the ten divisions of these generations uh, these are, we're reading the first division, the generation of the skies and the earth. Clearly here, there's, uh, let's just call it a, a second go on the creation account. So mm-hmm. we had chapter one, and then we kind of take a pause. And then it's like, well, let's go back and take a look at that again. And so here we have characteristically a second source. Uh, and maybe these may be circulated independently at some point, because chapter one is so poetic and beautiful. It's one of the most sublime works in the Hebrew language, chapter one of Genesis. And now we're drilling down conceptually, and we're not just narrating the sequence of those seven days, but we're saying, now let's go back, let's go back, and let's look at that again. What about when there is no shrub, and no plant, and there wasn't rain yet on the land, and there was no soil creature. So it's not so much that we need to say, okay, let's see, verse 5. So that would go back to what day? That's not the idea here. We're now taking a look at the bring, we're, we're focusing on the soil creature, right? The Adam, yep. uh, you- uh, uh, and and how he was made. So he shaped him, verse 7. Now there's another word, to shape, just like you would make something out of clay. It's literally the Mm. same word. You shape the soul creature. So what do you use? You use dust, and then you've got to animate the soul creature. And you breathe into, and notice it's his two nostrils. It's what we call dual. Mm-hmm. So that's how, you know, you say, well, why don't you just say nostrils? Because the Hebrew says, and, and look how poetic that is. You know, if I, he breathed into his two nostrils the breath of life. Um, yeah. And then what happens? He becomes a living breather. But here's what we said before. Remember, there can be a dead breather, right? What's a dead breather? It's a breather that isn't breathing. It's dead, meaning a creature that breathes and lives on oxygen, not necessarily human. So when humans here become living breathers, it's tough. I didn't. I worked on this a lot. What am I going to call it? If if it's he he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the soul creature becomes an animated breather or something. So I just said I took it literally a living because it's the word hayah to li- life breather. <laughs> so he's a life breather, a living breather, but he's a living living breather, not mm-hmm. a dead one. One one thing I wanted to bring up, James, to highlight what you just said about how now we're really focusing in on uh, this bringings forth. Notice that in verse 4, immediately after we first encounter the divine name, it switches the order, and I think this is for a reason— up until now, we've had uh, skies and land. Even at the beginning mm. of verse 4, these yep. are the bringings forth of the skies and the land, and they're being created. And then it says, uh, in the day of the making of Yehovah Elohim, land and skies. And mm. then you mm. get into this very earthly view. So some have described this as uh, chapter 1, 1 through 2, 3, 
was sort of this very high level um, uh, view of the creation. And now we're going to switch this and get very personal Mm. and up close. Now you're on the land looking up at this beautiful creation and there's a lot more detail. Yeah. And, so there's and, a switching the, of perspective. Yeah. That's right. And and one other point, you know, I, I hear people all the time. There's this uh, idea that people think about that we humanity are comprised of a body, a soul, and a spirit. Uh, but if you look at a very biblical Hebraic view, I would say it's more like a body. You know, he creates this. Adam, uh, and then he breathes into this lifeless body, and the body becomes a nephish, which mm. is translated soul. So you take away the breath, as James says, you have a dead soul. So people often talk about immortality of the soul. That's not a biblical idea, is it, James? It is not. And it's very misleading because it implies, for most people, immortality. And mm-hmm. clearly, this being here does not have immortality. This being is a living life breather, just like the beasts of the field and those that the animals that creep upon the earth and so forth. And even that word breath of life, if you look at footnote 36, that's that nishma or nishama, Mm -hmm. as people say in modern Hebrew. And you can see that uh, this breath of life is used for uh, all sorts of creatures, if they're breathing creatures. So it's nothing, you know, people try to make something very mystical of some of these Hebrew terms, and they're actually just pretty direct narrative terms. I I make a clay creature out of dust, and it's going to be, it's equipped to be a life breather, but it's not breathing yet. And then I breathe into it the breath of life, which other animals have too, the breath of life. We're going to get to the flood. Everything perishes in which is the breath of life. So it's not some mystical quality coming from heaven or something like that. And we're going to talk about, could that living life breather, that clay creature, that dirt man, that soul creature, possibly have eternal life? That's where we're actually, where we're leading in terms of this narrative. So we're focusing in on the soul creature, and we see that the soul creature is made of dust, But remember, that soul creature, we've been told, is male and female. And so Mm -hmm. we've got to somehow account for the female part. And so, as Ross said, we're, 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 we're focusing in, we're drilling in, we're drilling down. We're beginning to talk about some amazing realities. And it has to do with the living breather breathing being put in this garden, verse 8. So we should go ahead and talk about Mm. that. So we've and got a living. The, uh, sorry, I was just going to. I was just going to say that within the question of uh, eternity, because there's, there's a lot of people saying, "Well, you, do you mean that there is no eternal life? Is that what you're saying, or are you just saying that the soul is not eternal, and that's not implied here in the text?" Uh, and you mentioned that we will be getting into it. In fact, we. I, I think we will be getting into it in Genesis. I think at first uh, becomes a question in chapter 15, and we'll be there soon enough. Uh, well, the, one go ahead. One point, just just to add a little bit more to that, uh, the prophet Ezekiel. I love in in association with this text we're reading here. Uh, even though uh, you know, I mentioned that a soul can die, nephish, a nephish can die, which we're going to see very shortly in Genesis. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting about Ezekiel and the way that you uh, apply that to this text. Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 33, both talk about the nephish that sins, which is translated soul in most translations, uh, will die. And and then you have also in Ezekiel 37, though it's very symbolic and it represents the nation of Israel, you have a very interesting text of the Valley of Dry Bones Mm -hmm. about resurrection, see? So there is eternal life, if you will, but in the Hebrew Bible, it's more often this idea of resurrection as opposed to immortality of the soul. Right. James has taught on this plenty of times, and uh, it's where I learned it from. But this, there is a distinction to be made. People often conflate the two, uh, and they get certain ideas that aren't really based in the Hebrew Bible, I think is fair to say. 
See, people, uh, verse 7 in the King James and the American Standard and others pick this up. Jehovah God formed man, dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. See, humans are really different. They're living souls. They're not like the animals. That isn't what it says. It actually says the opposite, that man became a living being, a living nephesh. Guess what? That's exactly what the animals are throughout these chapters. So it's the personal attention to the man that's the key. He shapes him with his own hands. You see that idea in personally breathe. He doesn't say, and let the soil creature breathe, but he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. He animates him. Uh, you know how we talk about uh, bringing somebody back uh, that maybe stops breathing and you resuscitate. Resuscitation mm-hmm. if, they, if, you, if they actually maybe, quote, died, unquote. But the, the tender picture here is that you shape something and then you you blow upon it, you breathe upon it and animate it. So all of a sudden it starts breathing. And so Adam, you picture him waking up, opening his eyes, looking around and saying, oh, what's going on here? You see, it's 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 really a, a lovely picture, but it's mm-hmm. nothing about eternal life or the soul or the humans have something different than animals. That is dealt with as we go through, we'll see. And it's actually even in chapter three, so we're not far off. We're not far off. So what about this? What what happens next? Yeah, let's do a little more here. All of a sudden, we're gardening, and uh, and I love this because I actually wandered around my. It's spring here, right, in the southern hemisphere, and I wandered around with my camera and took some photos of my garden because I've got a vegetable garden and I love it. And it says here in in verse eight of chapter two, Yehovah Elohim planted a garden in Eden at the east. And there he placed the soil creature whom he shaped. And Yehovah Elohim made sprout from the soil every tree desired for sight and good for an eatable thing. And the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and bad. Uh, And a river goes out from Eden to make drink the garden. And from there it is separated and it becomes four heads. I'm going to stop right there. Uh, and just go back because it says uh, God planted a garden in in Eden at the east. At the east of what, James? At the east of Eden. Let's abolish the term Garden of Eden. I know it's embedded in our language. How about Garden in Eden? Mm-hmm. So that you would go, where's Eden, James? And I can't exactly ah. tell you where Eden is, but I can tell I can find a couple of these rivers. And I generally am over by the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea and so forth, even though our geography doesn't fit this exactly. Hmm. But wherever these rivers have their, um, is it called the the source and the head? What do we say when uh, rivers finally flow into a larger body? What, the headwaters. I the thought head the headwaters were where they start. Oh, I thought that's what you asked, James. I'm sorry. No, where they flow into a larger body. That's the opposite oh. at the other end. So, in other words, rivers start in the mountains and they start flowing yeah. down, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when they finally, I would say the mouth, normally we say the mouth, right? The mouth mm-hmm. of a river. Yeah. So the Mississippi, Ross, down by your way, you right. could, you're right on the Mississippi. You take a boat like Mark Twain and go down Samuel Clemens down the Mississippi you're going right. to finally come to where it flows out into the Gulf. Is that correct? That's right. The okay. mouth of the so, river. That's right. So these rivers flowed out into, and and I don't want to do the rivers yet, but just to make that point, that it's a garden in Eden at the east. Interesting. At the east. At and the this okay. east, we're, yeah, we're going to get this later. This is actually very important. East is where the entrance is of the tabernacle later. East is... How the sun rises in all ancient Near Eastern texts. Notice in ancient, ancient Near Eastern texts, you've got this idea of the east. So it's actually within the garden. I mean, within Eden is this garden. So what does Eden mean? It, it means a, pla- a place of pleasure, pardes, sometimes translated paradise. And I would mm-hmm. never translate it that way, but it's a very pleasant place. Mm-hmm. And you've got all of these sprouts then. So we've already had this idea, but we're focusing in on something very important. Two trees. So look, we've got, uh, he puts the soil creature there, and then he makes 
sprout from the soil every tree desired for sight and good every edible thing we saw that before but then notice the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and bad i put bad not evil because if you put evil it changes the the force of the uh, Hebrew. In other words, the opposite of good in Hebrew is bad. It's also true. Yeah. And when you go to evil, you're you're going to something too superlative. So it's literally two choices. Go down this road, that'll be bad. Go down this road, that'll be good. Now, here's something we're going to end with probably because it's so huge and mysterious. If you want to understand this, what is the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. The way to understand it is to ask, where is this phrase used other than the book of Genesis in this second account? In other words, don't we shouldn't sit here and say, well, Russ, what, what do you think that tree might be? What does it stand for? And a lot of people treat this like it's God just, uh, it could be almost any tree. I'm going to see if these creatures will obey me or not. It's going to be a test. So let's call it the test tree, right? Mm -hmm. Almost like the cookies on the cabinet. Don't touch those cookies till dinner time. I'm going to be gone for an hour, you say to the kid. I'll see you later, right? And the video camera is running. And what is the kid <laughs> do, right? The kid uh -huh. touches. And you come back and you're, why did you do that? I told you not to touch. That's how people read this. And they miss something so profound. And I'm just going to give you a little hint of this phrase is only used one other time in the Hebrew Bible. And we really need to pay attention. I, uh, one other time other than in this context of chapter 2 and 3. Okay. Because we get it again in this context. But outside of Genesis two and three one other time so and mm. if you go it's in the book of deuteronomy chapter one verse 39 we're most speaking to the people of israel we say the children of israel and it's at the end of the 40 years when they're ready to enter land enter the land and he says you know what all those little ones who do not yet have the knowledge of good and evil do not yet have it. Now, wait a minute. We're not in Eden in the time of Moses. What is he talking about? He's explaining what this phrase means. The tree of the knowledge of good and bad, or the good and evil, I keep saying good and evil because it's so embedded in our language. The tree right. of the knowledge of bad is growing up from a child, becoming a moral creature, making your own mature choices and charting your own path in your own way. And so it's not so much like slap your hand, we call it the forbidden fruit. Uh, it is forbidden in the sense that if you eat it, you got to leave the garden. Now, what does leaving the garden mean? You have no access to the tree of life. Now, think about this, and we'll let people think about this throughout the week. If you grow up and become a creature outside the gates of Eden, charting your own path, maybe you're Cain and you kill your brother Abel, or maybe you're a loving and kind person, you now have the knowledge, it literally means the experience mm. of good and evil, of becoming something, becoming a moral character of some type, maybe of a very bad type, maybe a good type, maybe a mixed type. But Moses refers to children now, we sometimes call this the age of accountability. I've heard that all my life. And it is true that around, what, 11, 12, 13, 14, right in there, uh, mm -hmm. people, the age where we say, you know, you're old enough to make your own decisions. You're old enough to uh, begin to decide. And uh, the, we all have children. And you know that a child at 12, 13, 14 can look at you and maybe not say it, Maybe they're afraid to say it. They could look at you in their own mind. They could say, I don't care what you say or what you tell me. I now have eaten the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I'm going to chart my own way. I'm going to make my own decisions, right? And it doesn't have to be rebellion. It can just be maturity and independence. But when you do that, you're accountable, you see. And guess what? I'll leave Eden. Why do you have to leave Eden? Because... There's also the tree of life there. And what you would do if you still had access to the tree of life outside the gates of Eden, you would immortalize forever the bad choices. Think about it. Yep. So 
you would have creature. You would have a Cain killing an Abel, and he would say, eh, and I eat the tree of life and live forever. And so I'm going to carry on my evil and never die, you see. Yep. And, and so we'll, we'll pick this up again, but it, I think it's a very profound idea that, to think about, very different from people. So it's not a test so much, you know, let's see what the creature will do if I walk away and give him a command. But it's actually talking about... Uh, well, let me put it this way. We've all had we've all had our Garden of Eden. We've all come to a point in our lives where we make our own choices, chart our own path, make our decisions. Am I going to tell a lie or am I going to tell the truth? Mm. And I'm going to be responsible for that. You're out of Eden. At that point, Eden hears. And that, so that, Moses, so, go ahead. No, I was just going to add on to what you were saying, James. That, that is very powerful that that only other place where it occurs, Tov Varah, uh, good and bad is Deuteronomy 139. Interestingly enough, there's one other text that ties in, but you're right about the exact phrase, Isaiah 7:15. Now everybody knows Isaiah 7:14 about a young maiden or as some people translate a virgin shall conceive and so forth. Of this one in Isaiah 7:15 it says he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse or reject the bad and choose the good. Hmm. So it indicates that a, a coming of age there as well, even though the term is reversed. So that's interesting. Seven Isaiah 7, 15 and 16 that, mentions that. And that further, very consistently, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, defines what this means. Yeah. And so... We've all bit, uh, this is a Bob Dylan phrase, I'm going to have to use it because he's one of my favorite writers. I know. He says, I bit, I bit into the root of the forbidden fruit and the juice ran down my leg. And uh, this is just his poetry, but you see the idea. We've all bit into the root of that forbidden fruit. Uh, and you say, well, should they have just stayed in innocent children forever in the garden? I actually don't think that was God's intent. And now I know some people are saying, so what you're saying, Tabor, is that God wanted them to sin. No, he wanted them to grow up. That's how I would say it. He wanted them to grow up. I love my children, and I love when they were three and four and five and six. And if one of them jumped out of the bathtub naked and ran down the street, you know, I didn't beat the heck out of them saying, you went out naked. This is shit. This is a kid, you know. But I don't want my, you know, 17, 18-year-old running around naked in the front yard, you see. <laughs> and notice, there it says that they're naked and unashamed. Hmm. Again, it's not the same words. Look how clear this is. Little children who don't yet have it. This child in Isaiah, and he's going to, before he even knows how to choose right and wrong and make his own choices, and being naked and unashamed, pre-sexual in that sense, you see, not being responsible adults outside of Eden. So Eden, you've got to leave Eden as you grow up. Uh, don't think of so much as kicked out. People say, well, they were kicked out of Eden. They weren't really kicked out of Eden. What they were, what happened was they were denied access to the tree of life. You see the difference? Mm -hmm. We're not going to give you eternal life when you have matured to the point where you be begin to define yourself as a moral agent, because that is an open-ended question. If you're age 13, what will you be at age 80? What will you What will you have become? And then we can talk about who gets eternal life, you see, in terms of what you've become. If you're a person who contributes and loves God and follows the ways of God and the ways of justice and righteousness, and you've left the world a better place and so forth, then you can see this idea of eternal life being appropriate, but uh, not, in the, not at the beginning of this story. So I think that's a good place to leave it. We're going to be kicking off uh, again next week with a geography lesson, I think. But final thoughts before we go, Ross? No, I, I think that uh, we covered it, it a good deal about the name, and James mentioned a couple of times uh, Nehemiah Gordon, and mm. I think that uh, he's a very good source, his material on the name in particular. Mm. Uh, one closing comment about the name, uh, because people, they argue primarily around whether it's Yeho or Yahoo, Yahweh, whatever, 
but typically we have a clue in the Hebrew Bible when it comes to names. Whenever a word, a name is mentioned uh, that employs the divine name in the name. So, for instance, Yehoiada uh, uh, or Yehozadak, uh, you know, any of these Hebrew names, whenever the divine Yod and Hey. Yehonatan. Uh, yeah, Yehonatan. There, it's a good one. That's a great name. Yehoshua. Uh, Notice Yehoshua. that anytime that you have the Yod and the Hey on the beginning of the name, at the front side, mm-hmm. it's pronounced Yeho or Jeho. Uh, if it occurs at the end of the name, I learned this from Nehemiah, and, and it's consistent throughout the Hebrew Bible, it's Yahoo. Yahoo. So, for instance, Isaiah, he, his name includes the divine name. In, in Hebrew, uh, you would say Yeshiau. Mm-hmm. Uh, notice at the end you say Yahoo. So, if God's name is yod Hey vav Hey, uh, yod Hey being the first two uh, Hebrew letters, it is very consistent in the Hebrew Bible to pronounce it Yeho as opposed to Yahoo or Yahweh. That's hmm. his argument, and I think it's it plays out very well throughout the Hebrew Bible. Just wanted I, to add that. I'm with that, and I'd also add to that, uh, my name, Yohanatan, is the same name as Netanyahu, the, the current Prime Minister of Israel. Eggs, it's just the, great example, great example, because it uses both. You could say if your both. name was Netanyahu, it's Yahoo because it's at the end. If it's Yehonatan, it's Yeho at the front. Excellent there example. Is. That is our show for this week. Dear listeners, thank you for tuning in to Gleanings from Genesis. The book of Genesis from the Transparent English Bible available now at Amazon in both the Kindle and paperback. Thank you, Ross. Thank you, Dr. James Tabor. Have a wonderful week, dear listeners, and we will be back this time next week. Thank you, John. Good to be with you. Thanks. Thank you, Ross.